Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of the Hacker Noon Podcast, where we talk to Todd Adamson and Mark Domwicks from Skydance Interactive, the acclaimed developer behind my favorite VR game, The Walking Dead, Saints and Sinners. Without further ado, let's get right into it. So first, could you both uh, briefly start by just introducing yourselves and your roles at Skydance? Sure, you want to start, Todd? Uh, yeah, so I'm currently creative director at, at Skydance. Um, my name is Todd Adamson. Um, you know, I don't know, game industry dude. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of all I have to say about that. Um, yeah, um, yeah, my name is, oh, sorry. Were you done that time? <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, I'm done. Go okay. ahead. Yeah, uh, my name is Mark Tomwitz. Um, I'm the project director over at Skydance Interactive. I've uh, been making games for a long time, since around 2001. Um, started out in engineering, um, and then have since done a number of different roles, from, uh, from engineering to design to production. And uh, my current role is kind of like a little bit of a combination of a lot of those things. Cool, cool. And I uh, did some LinkedIn creeping of your profiles before this interview. And I noticed you are both at uh, the Workshop Entertainment. Is that where you both met each other before Skydance? Yeah, so Skydance, or the Workshop actually got bought out by Skydance Media. Mm. So we were an indie vet, uh, dev for several years, and we were doing a lot of different projects and some work for hire. And then Skydance came in and actually bought the company because they wanted to get into VR. Okay. Is, is that because uh, the company had experience in, in VR previously before joining Skydance? Um, we actually didn't really have VR exper- like experience, but um, I mean, we had made some like prototypes. Obviously we were very interested in VR, but um, yeah, we were like a small indie, you know, we were doing mostly work for higher stuff. Like we worked on Gears of War 4, um, doing in their, that time, like, I was just going to say in that time, very few studios had VR experience. Like that was like yeah. what around that must have been late 2016 or something like that you know so like vr was still very very new so to find a, a studio that wholesale was ready to go with vr uh experience under their belt was uh pretty few and far between so i, see, I, I think see. they i you know you have to guess a little bit but I, I think what they liked about our studio was that we had we had a focus on innovative stuff you know we were doing a lot of work for higher um type projects but then sort of on the side and at feel like that's been part of the company history and, and Todd would know more because he's been at the company uh, longer than me, but um, and part of the company history has always been with this sort of tinkery mindset, uh, in a, innovative mindset. And I think that was what attracted Skydance into picking us up for, for our VR focus. Cool. What were some of the uh, biggest projects or the ones you're most proud of uh, that you did before you both joined Skydance? Well, I mean, I started my career at Treyarch. And there I was able to work on like Spider-Man. So like I I came on as like a young kid, like right when they were shipping Spider-Man 2. And I was like, it was like a dream come true for me. Yeah. Because I was always like a comic book nerd. Like that's like, I'm an artist. So like, that's how I learned how to draw. I was like Marvel Comics and stuff. And I was always a huge game fan. So I got to work there and I got to work on like Spider-Man. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Um, So I, I started there and then I shipped a couple games at, at Treyarch. I shipped Spider-Man 3 and um, 
and yeah, and then a bunch of people from Treyarch split off mm -hmm. from Treyarch to start the workshop, and they they poached me over there, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then we started the workshop, and that was you know a uh, very interesting but very good process. And then, you know, eight year, eight years later or something, then we got bought out by uh, by Skydance to do this. So I would say um, back to the original question, like Spider-Man was definitely very cool to work mm -hmm. on. Um, but honestly, I would say the, like The Walking Dead was, I mean, it was very, very difficult and the project, you know, had its, its you know, struggles, but it was definitely very rewarding and, sure. and definitely like a good, a good, point you know i so I, I i that project is definitely one of the best how about you mark yeah um actually just just before i i, I answer I, I don't know if it's well known but to to, to pick it back a little bit off if i was saying that um you know the founders of the workshop which became skydance interactive were also the original founders of treyarch so there's like a long oh. history yeah uh there's a really long history of um, really powerful and strong gamecraft uh, throughout this company. Um, but anyways, yeah, to answer the question, um, I, when I, my first ship game was um, Mercenaries for the PlayStation 2, Xbox One era. It was that open world military game set in North Korea, sort of uh, a little bit off the back of the open world uh, craze with, with GTA. Um, and that was with a company called Pandemic Studios. Uh, and that was a really, really that's the only other company I've worked for actually I worked with two companies in my career. And, um, that was a really, really lucky first experience in the game industry. You know, that team was an amazing team. So not only was it the game itself really fun to make, but I think it was partially really, a really good game, but it was partially a really good game because it was really fun to make. And the, the team behind it was just a really amazing cohesive team. And so to have that experience as your first shift game and the first uh, team to be on was, was just brilliant. And then of course, you know, pandemic is, they don't exist anymore, but they had this uh, really great rise. When I started there, they were a 30-man studio. And when I left, they were like a 200, 300-man studio across two, <laughs> two continents. So I would say That's that amazing. was, yeah. So I would say, you know, other than The Walking Dead, which I agree with Todd, is quite a feather in the cap, uh, in, in my opinion. Uh, Mercenaries was, was the other game that I talk about a lot as one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. Well, congratulations on uh, all your success, guys. You've definitely had a really uh, cool uh, CV that I could look up before this interview. But uh, thank you. Let's uh, let's get into the uh, nitty gritty here. Uh, so, talking about the Walking Dead Saints and Sinners, um, in an official statement, the uh, Skydance CEO uh, and the Skydance president uh, said that their goal at Skydance was to honor the visceral world that Kirkman has created. What were some of the biggest challenges you both faced trying to transfer the complex world of the Walking Dead comics and the Walking Dead television series into VR? Um, I guess I'll go first unless you want to, Mark. Go for it. But I mean, for me, the biggest challenges were like, I mean, obviously this is a very substantial IP that a lot of people have a lot of feelings about, you know, and they have a rich history in games. So like the two things that stood out to me was that you need to have a compelling narrative and then you also need to have that visceral element and that combat, right? And in VR, that means like we need to have melee combat and we also need to have like a compelling narrative. Mm -hmm. So like right out the gate, like, you know, typically VR games usually focus on an individual thing, but this kind of meant that we had to, you know, take on a lot more 
um, then maybe it was well advised. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was good though. You know, yeah, I, mean, I mean, there's, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say on, on that point, you know, taking on more than it was well advised. I mean, that was one of the challenges, right? Like if you want to sort of, you know, match all the rules of the universe, you know, that every, every walker and every person you see can be decapitated and, you know, the tab, like a, like a, a subtle rule is that if, uh, you know, walkers really only die if you brain them. And so we had to have this rule where like, if you decapitate a walker's head, well, you didn't brain them, their head just came off. And so their, their heads are still alive. And, you know, just making sure that we're implementing this game that's, that's fun and has all the rules that are all, also fun, but also consistent with the rule set. And then making sure that we have enough time and resources and manpower to be um, consistent with that rule set all the way through and, and, and make all the rules that we need to make. That was, that sort of implied and forced a certain amount of scope on us. That was, of course, challenging when we already have a bunch of other scope that we know that we want to implement to have this stuff that we have to also follow um, provides a certain amount of challenge. So I, I agree with you. Sure. I got to say, um, those small attention to detail is really what brings the world alive. That exact um, uh, case you just mentioned there, Mark, where if you decapitate the walker and you can pick up the head and still see the mouth moving, when I realized you actually went to the effort to do that, it, it was really amazing. <laughs> because uh, you don't really see that in, in really many games in VR, especially on the Oculus Quest. Like, without yeah. a doubt, um, this is the most complete game that's on the Oculus Quest library. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, those small things are really what bring the world alive, you know? I think so, too. Yeah, and um, sort of even apart from just the IP, like, you know, there's challenges that trying to make a game with high level of VRness uh, in it, um, high level of presence, um, that implies a lot of attention to detail as well. Or if you, or I should say, if you put in the effort to put in a lot of attention to detail, it pays off. You know, like um, one of the things, and this is this is a Todd gem, but like um, the ability to like find a cigarette and then smoke it, right? Yeah. That, that question like, oh, here's a cigarette. Can I smoke it? And then the answer is yes, you can. And then the next question is, can I light it? And the next answer is yes, you can. And then the next question is, can I light it with my gun? And the answer is yes, you can. Um, that... Uh, those attention details, which are a part of, from the IP, but just part and parcel with VRness in general, um, that I think is what um, really helps, you know, heighten experience for the game. For sure, for sure. And uh, again, that use case you talked about is, is something I think a lot of people try in the game. Uh, yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we actually got a lot of heat because you can't light a cigarette on a candle. <laughs> And that, like, you yeah. don't even know how much discussion there was about this. Like, there was a lot of active debate on Slack. And it, it honestly came down to, like, the power of, of you know, the hardware. Like, we, we had, like, if you want to light a cigarette, you need to have certain things on a candle. And that takes performance. And we just couldn't do it um, and, and hit frame rate. So we had to, like, and there, plus there's, like, a ton of candles in the game because, you it know, it's not, like, day. Yeah, and in our ship date, you know, because <laughs> yeah. like, you know, in, in a usual game, you know, maybe you're set in the future or something, and maybe you have like electricity and fluorescent lights, but like for us, all of our light sources had to be natural, mm -hmm. and we just couldn't, from a performance point, afford to have every candle in the game be able to light a cigarette. Yeah. So, I'm sorry, players. <laughs> we couldn't <laughs> yeah. do it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. We tried. There was a lot of debate about it, you know. So, like, uh, uh, 
decision making and VR development is, is a hot topic and a good topic. Um, a lot of our readership and our viewership on Hacker Noon are software developers and some of them game developers. Uh, when it comes to sacrificing things or, or not getting out er, every uh, gameplay mechanic that you wanted, uh, how do you balance that? Um, and how do you decide whether or not we're going to hit our ship date or, you know, let's postpone it a couple of weeks so we can make the game a bit better? How, how do you balance out those decisions? I feel like, uh, <laughs> I feel like as um, a person who is largely responsible for the production schedule, the answer was we always just said, let's do it <laughs> too much to my frustration. Uh, but no, in, in all seriousness, I mean, there was, there wasn't a single method. There was a lot of things that we relied on. Um, one of the big things was, you know, putting ideas out there and then getting user internal user feedback testing. You know, we would, we brought people in to uh, look at our, our, our experience as it is and tell us, you know, is this gameplay feature working for you? Is it confusing? Um, do you understand the story? Uh, so that user feedback guided us a lot. Uh, but then also we had professional user feedback. So we had hired a group um, whose job it is to play our game, give us a mock review, tell us um, the points where we're succeeding, tell us the points where we could need some work, where, not, where they don't think we're going to be competitive. So that guided us as well. You know, and, and these are things where, these are the external factors, you know, where you can't, you, when you're living the game, you, you, gotta, you can't get the outside perspective. That's kind of how we got a lot of outside perspective. But then of course we also, relied a lot on the traditional things, you know, including intuition, you know, we have a lot of experience in house on, on game development. So there's a lot of good intuition on what we think is going to work. Uh, and then, and of course, it's a very collaborative environment. So it's intuition from obviously the leadership, but then everyone involved in all these features had a, a tremendous amount of say. And I would venture to say that if you pinged anybody on the team about their involvement, they would, they could wax poetic about the features that they were responsible for and the input and sort of the ownership that they had and how it's expressed in the final product. So it's a combination of all these things. I see. I see. And talking there about your gameplay mechanics and the decisions you made, um, basically the walking dead saints and sinners, you know, there's lots of things about it, but there's a crafting mechanic. There's a survival mechanic. It's kind of open world in a way that you can travel to anywhere you want within this map. Um, you can follow the story. You don't really have to follow the story. You can just go and scavenge things, you know? Um, what was kind of your, uh, like, bring us into your decision board, your decision-making room board there. And how did you come to the decision to fuse all of these amazing mechanics into a game that really worked? Because you have lots of things going there, you know? Like, there are very few games mm. in VR that have a crafting mechanic right now. Um, I mean, it was kind of like, you know, we knew we had to have the, the story there but we wanted to make a game very much based on player freedom and we wanted and we also wanted to make a, a survival horror game we wanted there to be scarcity you know this is very much not a power fantasy like we wanted people to to really feel that um so we wanted there to be like consequence for people's action and i mean part of it actually came out that like originally the game that we were developing was a little more of a like a story-based game, a little more like a, a telltale type of thing. But then partway through, we kind of shifted direction um, because like one of our strengths as a, game, as a studio is gameplay. Mm -hmm. And so we just wanted to make a, a, a game that had a little bit of a mixture. And we, we did want to have that gameplay element there. And, you know, just the with the IP and I love horror stuff, we, we just wanted to make a real like, horror experience and have that scarcity, but also have, 
you know, strong, a strong gameplay element mm -hmm. there. And it just kind of happened, you know, in the, in the chaotic mix of everything going on, you know, getting the story element in there, but we also wanted to give the players freedom and make this more sort of free form thing where you can engage with the story. But we also have these, you know, atrophy mechanics where, you know, you're getting, you're getting, you're decreasing every day, you know? Yeah. And there, yeah, there was like a lot of, uh, you know, controversy. And e even after the game came out, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, you know, we don't like, you know, how severe some of these mechanics are and we just want the power fantasy, you know, but, you know, I think it was the decisions we made and that's the type of game we wanted to make, you know? I completely agree with you. And uh, there are enough games in the VR library that have the power fantasy, you know, there's tons of yeah. VR arcade shooting games. You guys really made something special there. Um, how much did you draw from past walking dead games that are out there? Like the telltale games and uh, the other ones that are out there. Well, we definitely drew from telltale for the story element. You know, you have the dialogue choices. We have a branching story in the game. I don't know if you've tried killing the tutorial guy three times, oh, but every time. <laughs> yeah, if you do, we pop we pop the little notification up that says tutorial guy will remember this. Yeah, you know, yeah. a little 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 nod to the Telltale games. Um, yeah. But you know, we very much we wanted to make our own thing. You know, we didn't want to like copy the Telltale things. Like uh, like they made great games, and we want to like you know nod to their excellent history and try to incorporate some of that. But we want to make our own you know, unique version of The Walking Dead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. And uh, The Walking Dead itself, you know, it, it's an IP and it's a story about, you know, the downfall of humanity and uh, what happens to a person when there's nothing left of the world. A lot of that comes down to ethics and morals. And going off again about the game mechanics you chose to uh, input, um, let's talk about those ethics and morals for a second, you know. Uh, you talked about Grand Theft Auto for a second there, Mark. That's yeah. a game that had a lot of heat when it first came out because of everything that people could do in the game. And that's yeah. just a, a 2D pancake game. Um, right. Right. In VR, you know, the first time you stab that walker and you, you pull the knife out and you feel the vibration, like, mm -hmm. I, I don't know what it really feels like to stab a walker, but this feels pretty damn realistic. Yeah. And, uh, we, yeah. We, we, I, yeah we, we thought about the moral implications a lot for a lot of different things, you know, like, you know, we made specific calls, for example, that th there would be no kids in the game because, mm -hmm. you know, just in general, we don't want, we don't want users to even have that window of interactivity in, in that, in that situation. Um, we implemented uh, personal space reactions. Those are the reactions where if you get too close to someone, you know, they'll be like, Hey, just get away from me. Just, just, uh, cut it out. You know, um, you know, even for a while we had it where, we, only the walkers could be decapitated. We not. We didn't quite want to pull the trigger on humans being decapitated too. And eventually, we decided, okay, we can probably do that. But it was for sure a consideration. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of games out there like like GTA and, and other things that are extremely violent. Um, but we couldn't rely on this idea that well, other games are violent too, so we can be violent because because it's VR and because it's got this sense of self that is just beyond what you can experience in, in flat gaming um so we and because it was new and we weren't sure what the established norms were going to be um we had to be a little bit cognizant of that we had to think about it so it was it was constant in our minds you know we knew we were making a violent game we knew we were making a horror game we knew we were making a very visceral game how far could we push it 
without pushing it too far, uh, you know, in for, for gamers taste and just for, for making the right decisions. So, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I wouldn't change a thing, but this is uh, what a lot of people do say, especially people who aren't really gamers. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but uh, I was talking actually to the developer of Arizona Sunshine, one of the developers at least, and uh, they were they had similar issues. Uh, one thing, one of the things that they talked about was uh, they were wondering whether or not they should let the player uh, put the gun to their own head and kill themselves in the game. What would happen there? Um, about these moral issues, uh, you, you guys did have to make difficult decisions and, you know, you did an amazing job. I wouldn't change anything about the game, but what were some like specific issues where you thought, you know, maybe this is too far, maybe we can do that. And what's kind of your, just your own personal phil- philosophical stance on this. Do you think, uh, since it's a video game, we should be allowed to do anything or everything. Should, we should just stay true to the IP and let, uh, do what we can to make that come to life. What's your opinion on that? I mean, I, I have no moral problem with violence in, in video games. Um, I mean, it, the dilemma for me more was that the game was too scary for some people and we had to actually tone it down. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I think, you know, we're all monkeys and I think uh, violence is in our nature and now we live a very kind of comfortable life but I think yeah. in our DNA, you know, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, we were, you would experience this type of violence in your day-to-day life, mm-hmm. you know? So I think for whatever reason, I think it's a good catharsis for people. And if you can do it in a totally safe way and, you know, I think people, people like it, you know, and I like it, like I like violent video games mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't feel the need to like justify that in any mm-hmm. sort of way, you know? Yeah, I think um, I, I agree with Todd, and I also just to be a little bit philosophical about it. I I, I do think of games as an art form uh, with the a, a good canvas to express the things you want to express. You know, it can be an evocative art form, and I don't think there necessarily should be. Obviously, there's limits for everyone's got their own personal limits on what art form is going to cross a line and become offensive or whatever. Uh, but I don't think that line should be dictated for anyone necessarily. I, I think that the, you know, obviously what dictates it for us is we're a commercial product. So, you know, we have to, we're dictated by what the sort of game community would be willing to accept. But as in general in video games, you know, I don't think there necessarily has to be a line, you know, it's, it's sort of like any other medium um, where it's really up to the authors or author to uh, find w- what's meaningful and for them and the things that they want to express. And so I don't think personally there's a, a real line. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool. So um, this game, of course, uh, originally didn't come out on the quest. It was uh, released on the quest just this year. Um, to be honest, I love this game enough that I bought it first on the PSVR. I bought it then on the quest when it came out, then I bought it again when it was in the humble bundle uh, oh, thanks, that, that it's in right now. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, thanks. Um, but one thing I did notice is that, uh, from the PSV, even from the PSVR to the Quest version, obviously there, there's a drop in uh, certain things, graphics, uh, other things. Uh, I always ask a lot of VR developers about this. What uh, do you kind of have to sacrifice or what changes do you have to make when porting to the uh, lesser powered Oculus Quest? And uh, how did you deal with those challenges? 
I mean, to me, like I, I wasn't super involved with the, it's mainly like a, a technical job and an art job. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it gets, you know, you have to be very precise about the things you allow on screen, you know, like, like number of characters and that sort of thing. Um, so you like, yeah, you, you have to be very deliberate, but it actually surprised me like what, like they kept the total experience intact, mm -hmm. you know, like all the game mechanics and everything, you know, things will be maybe a little lower fidelity, but, um, mm -hmm. but the experience is totally there. That's what I was worried about too. Like, I think everyone was worried about when we were first talking about going to class, which is like, well, do we have to make this a different game a little bit? Do we have to sort of like do a little bit of surgery on that and like, okay, well maybe we can only get like one marker on screen and we have to like cheat and like make it feel like it's a, it's the thing or maybe split up the worlds into like sectors and make them smaller or something like that. And so, you know, what's amazing is like Todd said, uh, we didn't have to do any of that. Like sort of the fundamental experience is fully intact on a mobile VR device. Um, and then it looks really good too. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of the better looking games on the device. Sure. Um, so I was, yeah, I, it was, it was, it was really technical wizardry and for like the down and dirty details, you'd have to talk to a tech director, mm -hmm. but man, like from really early on, even, uh, super impressed by the, the fidelity of the graphics and the fidelity of the experience. It was really always, through and through we've been true to the to even the pc game as an experience mm -hmm. definitely and for sure the full game is there in the oculus quest and to be honest it might be best on the quest just because there's no wires with the quest you can turn full 360 you can yeah. uh swing your arms around without worrying about breaking anything you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a lot of like wall hits and desk hits in the uh, development process for sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> and a lot a lot of damaged vr controllers Oh no! <laughs> a lot of a lot of people that were accidentally hit, you know, bystanders. This <laughs> yeah. getting too realistic. <laughs> so, talking about uh, the gameplay mechanics again, there for a second, uh, if you don't mind, I want to read you a uh, Oculus Quest review of the game that gave you three stars, and I just want to give you the chance to react to one of your critics and uh, reply to them, if that's okay. Sure. Yep. So. Uh, this guy said he's giving us a review. The game is great and a lot of fun. There is nice depth in the story, but there are some issues. And uh, one that I want to focus on here, he says that perhaps the worst of all is that they have arms attached to your hands. I personally hate uh, games that do that. The arms never look right and they kind of flop around weird running the VR uh, feel feeling while bringing little in the way of actual value to the game. It would have been better if there were no arms. Uh, what was the decision to uh, include arms and uh, how would you reply to this uh, critic? Um, I, I mean, like, you know, they're, everybody's different and everybody has their own, you know, uh, opinion about this. Like there's, there's kind of a scale, right? Mm -hmm. There's, you have floating hands, you have arms, and then you have a whole body, mm -hmm. right? And we made the decision and I still agree with that decision to just do arms. Because if you have the whole body, to me, it's like actually it takes you out of the experience even more mm -hmm. because I have no physical connection to those legs. Like games that have like a kick in them. Like I press the button and it's almost like humorous to me to see like a leg stick out there yeah. and kick because it has no relation to my physicality. So I, to me, it's more immersive just to just do the arms, just, you know, to a certain extent you have to accept that you're not in reality. And, um, 
and yeah, that's, that's the decision we made. I mean, I think the floating hands, I, I still stand by the decision to put arms in there. Um, actually triangulating the position of the elbow is certainly difficult. Um, and we have, we have ideas about how to make that better. Um, but it's, it's certainly at this point, not going to totally align with your real world elbow. Um, but I, I still prefer that over just floating hands. Um, you know, to what I would say to that, that person is, you know, every, everybody's different. Everybody's got their own ideal, you know, maybe, maybe in the future, if we don't put any sort of mechanically sensitive things on the forearms, like wrapping a bandage, maybe we'll include that option to just yeah, have, I mean, uh, free also there, hands. Also, there was some, there, to that point, there was some gameplay elements that sort of implied that we showed your arms, like wrapping the bandage around, and then also the walkers grabbing onto your arms. Exactly. Like, there were some aspects of it that we wanted to visually show you, too, and, and so it sort of lent itself into that direction. For sure. And uh, of course, you all spent a lot of time uh, on game balancing because, you know, it's a very well-balanced game. But uh, another review here says, movement is painfully slow. You can't run for long because if you do, you lose stamina and start panting and you can't see well. And, uh, <laughs> and your character must be the most out of shape person in the world because even with max stamina, <laughs> he can only run for 40 feet. Um, yeah. Honestly, I, th I think it works. But what would you reply to that? I mean, I, I totally get it. You know, it gets back to kind of the power fantasy thing and to us trying to make a more severe, like survival horror type thing. You know, I don't know if we got the numbers exactly right. Um, but I mean, certainly when you put no player likes to have penalties, right. But if you remove all penalties, it then makes the experience trivial. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's like hardcore people that are just like, I don't understand. Like, uh, I'm not tired. I could keep stabbing forever. You know what I mean? But, it, but it's like, we didn't set out to make a fitness game, you know, yeah. like we're, we're not trying to make it physically difficult. And so like, if you were to really fight the zombie in real life, um, it would be far more difficult than our game, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So yeah. we're, we're deliberately making a kind of authored, interpretation of that experience and we're trying not to make it physically difficult yes i'd say um, too that um the game does start with, with the player uh, uh, limited in that way but i would say that that's what gives you some range right like we like we don't want to be a power fantasy but we do want you to experience growth as your, with your hero and have it by the end of the game feel like wow i'm a, my hero is much more powerful than he was uh when i started it was worth all the work that I had done to do the upgrading and, and yes. do the scavenging and do all these things. And so having you start in a weaker state in the beginning is what really allows for the player to experience that growth, which is an important part of the experience as well. Yeah. And also, I just think it's, I think it's more realistic. Like uh, I think people forget that your character is usually carrying two shotguns, two pistols, a bunch of stuff <laughs> in their backpack. Yeah. Let's see how far you can really run with all that stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At, at one point we were actually going to have weight, so like each object had a weight and that would determine the amount of stamina, but we just didn't have time to do it. So we ended up mm -hmm. cutting it, but I see, I maybe see. in a future project. Yeah. And uh, one, uh, going back to a point uh, you said there, Todd, um, some games in VR 
do actually take into account how fast you swing the controller and translate that to force in the game. Um, what was kind of the decision-making process that you both made to not include that? Because, you know, one of the, um, the main tutorial points is you don't need to swing the controller quickly. You just need a wide range of motion. What, why didn't yeah. you um, tie the speed of the controller to the force of the weapon in the game? Well, the answer is kind of complicated. Um, I mean, we do include velocity in the, in the calculation, right? But I mean, the reality is you have no resistance and the way we're simulating, uh, physicality in the game is based on the distance of your real hand, uh, to your in-game hand, right? So basically the, the theory is, and I think it works out is that um, since you have no physical resistance, right? Like if you stab something, boom, your in-game hand stays here and your real world hand goes and then your brain interprets the distance between your in-game hand and your real hand as physical resistance. So you stab something, your in-game hand goes down here and then you see, bam, like your, your in-game hand goes down, right? So you can think of like that distance as the physical resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, with the physics and everything that we're doing with, in the game, um, we're using that paradigm. So that's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer is that, you know, developing, we didn't want to make a fitness game, right? We didn't want the game to be physically difficult. And one interesting thing about VR is that you have to, you know, develop for a wide variety of people. You know, everybody's different everybody's got the length of their limbs are different. Their physicality is different. They have different levels of fitness. We didn't want this to be a game for like people that do CrossFit or something. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like we didn't, we didn't want you to get actually tired. Mm -hmm. So we want you to be able to physically interact with the world in a way that's not going to like completely tire you out. So we didn't want people to be like fully doing like full strength, swings like all the time you know like you would get tired of that like after a short period of time and it's just not the type of game we're making like we're we're trying to make something people can play for longer like a media experience that's more about like your your decision making than your physicality Mm -hmm. very cool that uh idea you said about um the hypothesis that your brain interprets you know resistance by where your hand stops is that something you guys came up with or is that just a norm that's floating around in the industry right now um i mean well the first time that i saw this type of thing done was in a browser game called windowsill um i don't know if you've ever played it but it's a brilliant game absolutely beautiful game um i forget the developer's name but um i saw this like 10 years ago or something where like it was all physics based. It was in a browser. It was all, uh, it was 3d, but it was like a 2d mm-hmm. side scroller, but it was all physics based. So you would click the mouse on an object and you would have to like solve these puzzles. So you'd click a mouse on an object and then you would pull that object like physically, but it would resist. Right. So like it's distance wouldn't increase as much as your mouse did. Mm. And it fascinated me because I come from like an art and animation background and I was just like, holy shit. And, and I thought it was, I thought it was totally awesome. And then I saw some early games start to try to do physics in, in VR, um, like Gorn or something like that. And I, I always wanted to try to like use this method. 
Um, and then we got the opportunity here and, you know, even, even while doing it, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of people that were like, eh, is this really going to work or something? You know what I mean? But I think, you know, the, the big question was like, are players going to kind of accept this abstraction, right? Like the abstraction of no, it's not you one-to-one, -one, but you're kind of controlling an avatar and, you yeah. know, we're using that kind of cheat. Um, yeah. but you know, I think it, I think it worked out. So I think it's pretty cool. It's, I think I it's think really it, cool. Yeah. I was gonna say, I think it worked out quite early on too. Like even in our prototype phases, we spent a lot of time prototyping, you know, back to what you were saying about how we make decisions. Like one of the big things was just a lot, a lot of prototyping. Uh, and I would venture to say that early on what Todd was saying clearly was working. Uh, you know, but we, we, I mean, it was one of the biggest struggles we had as well was teaching people how to do it because it was kind of a new paradigm. So we started play testing it. And what we found is that like, you know, like we do, we try to encourage range of motion. So we try to encourage like a full stab motion. Mm -hmm. And when we would bring players in and we'd have them do the tutorial, everybody would grab the knife and they would just do this. Like they would just like jerk their hand in air and expect that to stab. Yeah. And it was so like kind of weird to me, but I understand it. Like, I think I blame the Wii maybe because people <laughs> yeah, had like yeah. these, yeah. these motion controls where yeah. it's like, like if you were actually trying to stab something, you know, you'd like do this, yeah. but like everybody, like once you put a controller in their hand, they just lift their hand up and they're like, stab, that's the stab <laughs> command. You know what I mean? And it's like, it wouldn't yeah. work. And it was like, I was like clawing my eyes out, like trying to figure out like, okay, how do I get people to actually do this motion? And it took a long time too. Mm -hmm. And eventually what we had to do is we had to like, when people would do this, then we would make like a, a bright pink ghost hand come out and be like, continue, continue, <laughs> continue. And then people would like continue the stab. And the first time they did it, I was like, glory, hallelujah. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> For sure, for sure. And I think um, the way you just set up the, the game kind of teaches you that because if you don't stab with a full motion, the walker will just kind of like like back off a bit, but you won't actually make contact. And I think, you know, people just learn by playing it. I think you really made a, a well-balanced game that you kind of learn what works and doesn't work uh, throughout your playthrough. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I agree with Todd though, man. The, the, I feel like the we... we, we the Wii experience, like the waggle controls. Like, I don't know, that taught a lot of people that you could just sort of like flick your wrist and then see like in-game experience that was like disproportionate from that. And we had the same problem um, early on. We, were, we had, there's a little bit of punching in Archangel, which was a, a game we had done previous. Mm -hmm. um, and the exact same thing happened. We, you have this giant mech and you'd be like, hey, in the mech, you need to punch this bridge. And players would just kind of like shake the controller and expect it to like break a bridge. And we're like, no, you got, what would you do if you were actually trying to punch a bridge? Imagine that. And we never, we didn't crack that egg. So I think this, this, this time around, we, we finally did. Nice. Nice. Good for you. And um, one of the biggest complaints you see from a lot of people maybe entering VR for the first time is that a lot of the games on the Oculus Quest, especially just feel like tech demos. You don't have a full game. You don't have a full narrative, especially. And The Walking Dead, uh, Saints and Sinners, by far one of the best narratives on the Oculus Quest library. Um, how much iteration did you guys do on the, that story and that narrative line? Did you go through different writers? Did you um, get different pitches? How many times did the story change throughout development? 
so that was it a very long the story of the story is itself <laughs> a, a, a thing uh it was a very long process like todd was saying early on and like i'll just say like you know the, the this project has its roots all the way in in, in 2016 wow. um and early on in that initial development was very very story focused um and it was in fact it would, the, the game had sort of taken um different forms through its development and, and an early form of it was a very story-based game uh, and so we had a whole thing with like, we had a writer room process uh, that was, you know, months of, of, you know, our writers and writers from Skybound collaborating on, on the story. Um, so, y y sorry, <laughs> I forgot, what was the question again? Um, how much like iteration did the narrative go through? How many times did you have to oh, rewrite, right. you know, things like that? Yeah, it was, it was a lot actually, you know, because it had taken so many forms, right? And so there was that initial form for what it is and then it, it ended up not working out and we had to re-examine it. Um, there were different changes for taste, uh, but then there were also uh, changes for, um, you know, production reasons like, oh, okay, well, it turns out that uh, this is not, we can't have as many levels as we wanted to, or we, we can't have as, as many quests as we want to. So what are we gonna do about, uh, you know, adjusting the story for that sort of thing? So it was a continuous process. I mean, I guess it depends a little bit on what you mean by um, like a change in the story. Yeah. But this, the story was continuously being tweaked, you know, almost to the end in, in some ways. You know, if, like if you want to come with specific details, you know, missions themselves being tweaked. If you want to talk about like structure, even story structure was something that uh, was being tweaked, you know, maybe six months out to the end. We were still mm -hmm. thinking about changes to story structure. So cool. it was, it was a constant thing. I, I have a, one specific question about the story that I do see a lot on the forums. Um, this is a spoiler. So if anybody watching this hasn't played the game, you know, turn this off, <laughs> but um, at the very end, uh, what was kind of the thoughts around deciding to force the character to save one, save Casey or, or kill, uh, <laughs> kill, uh, sorry, uh, wow, her name is blanking on me. I think, so who's not with us, and I wish was, was the uh, uh, creative director and narrative director of the project. And he's, there's kind of an internal team uh, inside joke that he's kind of, <laughs> he likes violence. Uh, <laughs> and, and he likes, he likes forcing like twisted, twisted decisions on the player. Uh, and he really wanted to make sure that the player came up against a decision like that uh, and make, make the player make really tough moral decisions for themselves, which have no true right answer. That there's going to be an answer with some upside, but guaranteed to have some downside no matter what choice you, you made. Um, and so that I would say that that was, that was kind of his baby. <laughs> he wanted to make sure. And then I would say too, though, I mean, even though that was his baby, I think that was a really good um, fit with the IP anyway. For sure. You know, back to what you were saying about like, what is our challenges of, of using the IP? Well, one of the challenges was making sure that we were true to some of these hallmarks of the IP, mm -hmm. which is, you know, a lot of, one of the big ones is telling human stories of struggle and tough decisions and who you become in the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And so that was really, um, that was an opportunity for our narrative director to really dig in and, you know, yeah. and explore and explore that with these sorts of like moral questions. I think it's, it was a great choice. And um, 
you kind of really push the boundary in VR. Uh, I see you have an amazing video game collection behind you there, Mark. So you might oh, yeah. know what I'm yeah. talking about. Um, yeah. You, I'm not sure if you're that era, but when the first uh, Ultima games came out, it kind of broke a boundary where people realized there's morality to decisions in video games. And um, in VR, you know, we don't, we don't have that. The other zombie games, you're just really shooting zombies. There's no decisions. But with The Walking Dead Saints and Sinners, somebody will walk, will walk up to you and say, hey, uh, give me some medicine. Uh, my boyfriend's dying. Right. You could just shoot them in the face. And it's like, <laughs> that's, that's never happened before in a VR game. And I really commend you for that because, uh, honestly, it blew me away. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So, uh, lastly here, I'm talking uh, to a lot of developers and publishers about um, the issues they've had to adapt to COVID. Um, in your experience, how has COVID changed the game development industry from your point of view? And how has your team adapted to those changes? Um, I would say that it's really the changes are kind of the changes that every company's facing. I, I don't, I'm not, I can't think of anything that is unique to the game industry, but it's all the same things that I think every company is, is facing, you know, and there's definitely, definitely challenges. You know, I think it's, there's a certain amount of friction that gets added on all of our processes. Like for example, um, we wanted to do some motion capture. Uh, and so you can't just get people in a room again and do motion capture. Everyone's got to go and get tested first. And it's, it can't be all the people that you would typically have in a motion capture set. It can't be that, um, you know, free form. It's got to be specific people who have gotten tested um, or, or like coordinating meetings, for example. It's, it's a lot easier to coordinate meetings and, and get everyone coordinated in general in person. Uh, but now having to do it, you know, through, through Zoom and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, just adds an extra layer of friction, but um, I don't know if, if Todd, you had anything in mind, but I, I can't think of anything specific to games that is, you know, has affected us. I mean, I think, I think we were actually better positioned for it. Like this, the, the whole lockdown literally happened when we were like four weeks from shipping PSVR. Wow. Right. Or, or at least locking down our, our ship for PSVR. And I think companies that are a little more tech oriented, like uh, we all obviously work on computers, like, you know, and, and video games is a very tech oriented thing. So um, we're a little bit better positioned than, than probably other industries. Um, so it was a pretty quick adaptation for us. Like we didn't even uh, slip our ship date. Nice. We we're just like one day, everybody's like, all right, everybody's going home. We're gonna did, have, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a couple of days. IT is going to bring all your computers and everybody get set up. And now this is what we're doing. You know? We did have a certain amount of experience in that anyway, because a certain amount of our uh, developers were already working from home. We have uh, external contractors that work closely with us. Uh, not even just contractors, some full-time employees uh, who are have been working remotely the whole time. And so there's a, a certain amount of experience. And then I would say too that, I, I personally was was a little bit nervous about the transition, but it wasn't as bad as I was feeling. And I think part of that was because where the challenges is when it's mixed, I think, when part of the studio is working from home and part of the studio is working in-house, you sort of design your processes and tool set with whatever the, you know, in our case, working in, in an office, we design our processes and tool set for that. And then people working from home are the outlier and they kind of, it feels like a pain to sort of accommodate the, that, that case. Um, but then it, obviously it's true when everyone's working from home. Once everybody's working from home and you can tailor everything to that process mm -hmm. and, and tools, 
your tool set to that, um, that becomes sort of the easier thing almost. And if, in fact, if there were people working in the office, that might be a little bit weird. So, mm. you know, I still think it overall it's a little bit tougher, but it's not as bad as I had thought it was initially. For sure. I mean, for sure. I, I think the big, the big loss is ad hoc communication, right? Because like, now basically every communication you have with somebody has to be deliberate it has to be yeah. like oh i'm going to contact this person right where when you're all working together there can just be ad hoc conversations that sometimes lead to features you know yeah, that's a really good and point. and those are kind of gone now so it's a, it's a, it's almost like a, a little more regimented like everything has to be kind of deliberate and part of a process rather than a little more free form where things can happen kind of loosely and I, and i do think that is a detriment definitely yeah a lot of those lines too i feel like you miss just general buzz like a, a thing that i like to um measure informally to get a sense of like you know how you know is is the project that we're working on is the effort that we're working on healthy and one of those things is this like soft concept of buzz, you know, are people talking, are the conversations going on? Um, what's the energy in the room? Uh, you can't really, you know, you can't measure the temperature of the room <laughs> in, yeah. in here. So you have to, you have to use other metrics to figure that out. Um, but, I see, I yeah. see. Cool guys. And uh, as I said before, you know, lots of the hacker new and uh, readership are devs, software devs, indie game devs. Um, since both of you are in the industry, uh, lots of our readers, you know, they're trying to get into the gaming industry. Some are trying to get into the VR gaming industry. Do you have any specific um, words of advice for people who, you know, want to get a job in VR gaming? Is there anything that would specifically stand out on an application to you? Um, I mean, I would tell them to do research like look on LinkedIn, look at people's resumes and pick a specific thing that you want to start as, right? Like whether it be 3D art, whether it be game design, it's like, it depends on the person, right? Whether it be audio. Um, so I would, I would advise like, you know, being very specific and curtailing your resume and your skill set and developing that skill set to a specific thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then hit people up, uh, you know, on LinkedIn. Like I, people hit me up on LinkedIn. I'll have convers- I'll talk to them on the phone, you know. Nice. Um, just, just reach out to people. Um, but definitely have a specific skill set. And you know, in order to get a job, it is competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to have a, a demonstrable skill set in a specific area, even if you want to branch out later. That's fine. But in in order to get in, you need to have that that specific skill set and just keep at it like motivation is such a big part of the game you know yeah just I would, don't 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 relent yeah and i would say um you know make games just do it you know like n- nowadays the idea of making games is so much more accessible than it was we were back when todd and i were getting in the industry uh it was a very technical nerdy thing but nowadays the tool sets that they have available the ability like things like unity and unreal being free and available um, the barrier to entry is so much lower. There's really no excuse. So if you, if you want to make games professionally, make games as a hobby first, that's going to teach you so much of the ropes and on a resume, 10 times more, more powerful to see someone with a demo than it is to see somebody just with words, uh, sure. you know, and an academic background. Let's see what you can do. Let's see some of your, your handiwork. Let's see some of your craft in actual concrete, uh, you know, a concrete executable uh 
that there's so many benefits to, to actually just doing. And that's what I would recommend. For sure. Yeah, for sure. I agree with that. Like, like if we're going to hire a designer, like we want to see things they've actually developed. For sure. Of course. And uh, to end things off there, guys, uh, talking to that same audience, can you think of uh, a specific headache you had, not even just with Saints and Sinners, just in um, VR game development in general, that, uh, you know, if you had known beforehand that this would turn out this way, you would have changed one thing. Could you try to maybe save our readers from having the same headache you had during a specific part of the process? I, I guess <laughs> this is a little bit maybe technical. I don't know if this gets to the point no, that good. you're asking. That's good. Um, you know, but we, this is a mistake that we made and I don't know that we know the solution either, but we took a lot of prototypes to, to shipping. So a lot of the things that actually shipped started as prototypes mm -hmm. that that's really good for fast movement uh, and fast development, but it's not great for sort of the long-term lifetime of the system itself. And it leads to a certain bugginess and, and a certain lack of robustness. Um, and so to the degree, and I guess a lot of that stems for from like visual scripting. So for like users out there, visual scripting is great. It's an amazing thing. It's a amazing tool. But one of the downsides is it can be a little bit hard to maintain. It can be a little bit hard to collaborate with. Um, so some background in uh, maybe this is just my, my my technical background shining through, but some background in sort of actual um, text scripting or programming, um, I think would do wonders in teaching you how to do better visual scripting. Even if you're going to do visual scripting as sort of your main way of doing it, um, some understanding of how it works at a more programmery level is going to allow you to make more robust um, systems, which could end up being, you know, which if it gets converted by a programmer, it's going to help them out. If it ends up shipping, like sometimes it does, did for us, it's going to make for a more robust um, feature that ships. Yeah, I, I agree with Mark and I'll expand upon what he said a little bit, which is, um, you know, VR, it is like the constraints are incredible, right? Like you have to render many more pixels typically, and you have to do it at what, 70, 90 FPS. Um, so you have to make very deliberate decisions about what you're doing. So if anybody's starting out, I would just say, um, have a sense of humility about your, about the process. Um, and, you know, don't just barrel in, uh, you know, thinking that you can do everything with visual scripting. I mean, if you're, if you're working solo, like go ahead and do visual scripting, but just have a, a healthy respect for all, what you don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I would say, um, focus yourself. Like, don't don't try to do too many things. Hmm. Um, as, especially if you're an indie, if you're solo, or if you have like three people, like, focus yourself, and and do a very specific thing very well. Don't try to spread yourself out. Like, don't try to make, you know, a competitor to the big AAA game. Like, it's never going to happen. You're going to drown, and you're going to give up. Hmm. Like, just focus on being the best at a very specific thing. Yeah, that's great advice. Great advice. Thanks very much to both of you. Let's end on what I assume will be a cliffhanger. Everybody's wondering, will there be a Walking Dead Saints and Sinners 2 in the works at any time in the future? No comment. <laughs> you as well, Todd, no comment? Um, yeah, I mean, I can't. I, 
you know, every marketing and everybody would kill me if I commented <laughs> on what we're working on right now. Um, I'll just say that, you know, we have, we're, we're hard at work on, on stuff right now and we're working on some cool stuff and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll let more information out about it, um, in the future. Well, thanks very much. And, uh, I'm excited for all of your future works guys. Thanks very much for your time today. This yeah. Thank you. Really interesting. Really appreciate interview. It. Thank you. Thank you for watching another Hacker Noon podcast. If you liked what you saw, please give us a like and subscribe for more future podcasts on virtual reality with some of the biggest VR game devs in the industry. Also, be sure to follow Skydance Interactive on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks and see you next time.